Good, Sarah, thank you very much indeed for that very clear reading. Uh, a warm welcome to everybody. It's lovely to see you, and you're in very good voice this morning. Um, I gather that we are actually registered with the Gettys as a church that they will consider to be uh, included in their video for this year, so we have good reason to hope uh, that you'll have your minute of fame on the internet or wherever it is. Um, one uh, notice before we begin, and that is that the uh, workshop for the ladies Building on the Rock uh, is next Saturday morning at 9 o'clock here. Uh, this is a discipleship course. Um, if you've missed the first one, don't worry. Do please come along. 9 o'clock brunch will be served, and uh, I do hope you'll come and join in. Good. Well, let's ask the Lord to help us understand this very important text. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you have taught us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray that you would come to us this morning as a father with little children, that you would break down for us the bread of life. We pray that you would not only open our mouths that we may feed, but also our hearts that we may inwardly digest the food of the gospel. And we pray that as we look again into your word, that we may find our Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life who has come down from heaven, that in him we might enjoy eternal and everlasting life. Speak to us then, Lord, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, Billy Graham died this week at the age of 99. By God's grace, Billy Graham was an extraordinary influence for the cause of Christ throughout the world. Uh, he preached to live audiences numbering in excess of 200 million people. Uh, he travelled to 185 different countries. At his various crusades, more than 3 million people were converted. He met with every single sitting president, from Harry Truman to Barack Obama, and was friends with some of them. If we include his uh, radio and television broadcasts, his lifetime audience is estimated at 2.2 billion people. Yes, by any standards, Billy Graham accomplished a great deal during a long life. And I think on the surface that makes for a rather striking contrast with the life of the Lord Jesus. Because while Billy Graham died at the age of 99, Jesus died at the age of just 33. As I said, Billy Graham ministered in 185 different countries. Jesus ministered in just one. Billy Graham's ministry lasted for 70 years. The ministry of the Lord Jesus lasted only three. If Billy Graham won three million souls for Christ, when Jesus died, he had just 12 followers. One of them turned out, of course, to be a traitor, and the rest were distinctly wobbly. 
Uh, It was only actually after the death and resurrection of Jesus that things began to change. Yes, the differences are very striking. But it reminds us, I think, just how unique Jesus Christ really is. Because in the case of Jesus, everything about him is focused on his death. As Jesus heads to Jerusalem, he keeps telling his followers that when he gets there, he's going to be killed. And he even speaks about his death as the purpose of his life. Now, wherever you stand on Christian things this morning, you've got to agree that that is utterly unique. Billy Graham never did that. In fact, no human being, however courageous they might be, ever talks about their death as being the purpose of their life. And by his death, you see, Jesus stands as someone who is utterly different from anybody else who's ever lived. That's why, of course, the the cross is the symbol of the Christian faith. It lies right at the very heart of the Christian message. And if we don't understand the cross of Christ, we shall never, never understand what Christianity is really all about. So why then did Jesus have to die? I mean, wouldn't it have been better if he'd lived for another 30 or 40 years and done a few more miracles, gathered a few more disciples? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, in our passage, Luke says that there are three things that we need to know. First, Luke says that Jesus had to die because Satan had to be defeated. Now, uh, if we'd all been given a piece of paper when we arrived at church this morning, and I'd ask you to jot down three reasons why you think Jesus had to die, I wonder how many of you would have said that. But the first reason that Luke gives in this passage is that Satan had to be fought and he had to be defeated. So if you come with me to verse 3, you'll see that Luke is, is showing us what's really going on behind the scenes. He says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Now that's a very important verse because you see Luke is just for a moment lifting the curtain as it were and showing us the the spiritual reality behind the human drama. Uh, If you've been with us on our journey through Luke then you'll know that we've become very familiar with the human opposition that Jesus had to deal with. Uh, Just to give you one example, glance back to chapter 19 and verse 47. Because we read there that every day Jesus was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. Now there are a number of verses like that, And uh, this morning, in chapter 22, the authorities still haven't found a way through the problem. And you can see that in verse 2, where Luke says, the chief priests and teachers of the law 
were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. And that, of course, is the context uh, that we need to have in our minds as we read verse 3, that Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot. Now, you might be thinking to yourself this morning, well, how was it that religious leaders who were sincere men, who set out not to be hypocrites, but to be sincere followers of Almighty God, how was it that people like that could come to the point where they are absolutely obsessed with removing Jesus and stamping out everything that he stands for? Well, let me ask you this. Where do thoughts like that come from in our hearts. When we refuse to accept what Jesus says, when we decide to go our own way and resist his will, when we disobey his clear commands, where do thoughts like that come from for us? Well, the Bible tells us that from Genesis 3 onwards, they come from our enemy, the devil. Now, first and foremost, of course, uh, the devil is God's enemy. But you remember that when Satan comes into the Garden of Eden and he tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God's authority, he is setting out to destroy mankind because man is the climax of God's creation. And if Satan can overthrow man, if he can take the creature whom God created in his own image to love him and serve him and worship him and make him a rebel, well, quite obviously, that is a very significant step forward for Satan in controlling this world. And the Bible goes on to tell us that that is precisely what's happened. You see, Satan's success in the Garden of Eden has given him a power base in every single human life ever since. Because in C.S. Lewis's immortal phrase, we are all sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. And that means that we're born with a sinful human nature that has an inbuilt bias, like bowls on a bowling green, away from God. And we have a heart that is naturally in rebellion against God. And so, using the flesh, which is the Bible word to describe our sinful nature, and using the world as the channel of his influence, and by the world we're talking about the culture, the devil continues in 2018 to exploit the weakness of our humanity in order to pursue his rebellion against God. And brothers and sisters, he's even doing that in the lives of people in this building this morning. And uh, in our passage, in the circle of Jesus' disciples, Satan finds an open door. Then Satan entered Judas. 
How did that happen? Well, John tells us in his Gospel that that, uh, Judas was the treasurer amongst the disciples and that he had his hand in the till. And if it really was the attraction of the money that the authorities offered him to betray Jesus, well then, of course, he wouldn't be the first or the last person who, when it comes to a choice between God and money, chose money. And of course Judas had a very valuable asset to sell. He knew where Jesus was. He knew his movements. Whatever his motives were, Satan seized the moment and entered Judas. And the outcome in verse 5 is that Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now you see, in broad daylight in the city with all the crowds pressing around him, Jesus was comparatively safe. But we're told by Luke that every evening Jesus went out of the city and he spent the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives because he knew that humanly speaking, he wasn't safe in the city after dark. And so he he stayed on the Mount of Olives at night to avoid arrest. No one was quite sure where he was. Now friends, all of that explains why Jesus made those rather elaborate arrangements in verses 7 to 13. You see, under the Old Testament law, Passover had to be eaten at night. And since Jesus wasn't staying in Jerusalem, it would obviously have to take place in a secret location which turned out to be the borrowed room of a friend's house. So, Peter and John are sent into the city to prepare the Passover and they're told by the Lord that when they get there, there will be a very special sign. Verse 10. Have a look at verse 10. I've often wondered about this verse. Jesus says, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, what's so very special about that is that it was very unusual in that culture for a man to be carrying a jar of water. In those days, it was always the women who were sent to draw water. So you see, this was somebody that the disciples would recognise immediately. And this man is going to lead them to a house. They don't know where the house is. They simply have to follow the sign as they get into the city. And when they reach the house, they're to say to the owner, verse 11, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, why all of this kind of cloak and dagger stuff? Why this mysterious sign? Well, simply so that nobody would know where the disciples were going to eat the Passover meal. Because, you see, the the king who had entered the city on Palm Sunday is now the king whose life is in danger the moment he enters the city walls. 
He now has to eat the Passover in a borrowed room and he knows that even as he eats it, there is a price on his head. And Jesus didn't tell anybody his plans, not even Peter and John, because he knew what Judas would do. Now friends, what you and I are meant to learn from this is that although Satan had entered Judas, Jesus was still in complete control of the situation. The spiritual battle between Satan and Jesus was about to reach its climax. And that was one of the reasons that Jesus had to die. Satan had to be defeated. And friends, you and I must never, never forget this. See, whether we're looking at the cross of Christ or whether we're looking at the church of Christ in the world, we must never forget that you and I are not fighting against flesh and blood. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, our struggle is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Christians who think they are not engaged in a spiritual battle are asleep. The church is constantly being ambushed. The church is constantly in the midst of evil. And those who seek to live a life that honours Jesus Christ must constantly expect that the devil will seek to stop us, that he will try to divert us, that he will try to tempt us and he will try to bring us crashing down. Jesus had to die so that Satan could be fought and in an ultimate sense defeated. And Luke lifts the veil to show us what was really going on behind the scenes. That the plot against Jesus Christ is not just a man being trapped in a political situation. No, no. This is the Son of God giving up his life for the world. But Luke has a second reason in verses 14 to 18. Yes, Jesus had to die so Satan could be defeated. And secondly, Jesus had to die so that Passover could be fulfilled. Just have a look at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. Now Luke is very, very precise about this, isn't he? The timing is precise. You see, the drama is moving towards its conclusion. The hour has come, Luke says. It's almost as if it has been carefully planned and scripted beforehand, although, of course, the main characters have got no idea how it's going to unfold. But, of course, Jesus does know 
Can you see in verse 15, he tells them, I am about to suffer. And again in verse 22, he says to them, The Son of Man will go. I'm about to suffer. I'm about to go. But isn't it interesting that in spite of that, his eager desire, verse 15, is not to get it all over with as quickly as possible as you and I might want to do, but rather to explain to this band of disciples what it all means. Because the Passover is about to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now still today, of course, every year, Jewish families remember the great event of God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt at the first Passover. It's one of the things, of course, that unites Jewish people all the way around the world. They want to get home for Passover, just as you and I want to get home for Christmas. It's a great feast in their annual calendar. Wherever Jewish families are around the world, Passover is still celebrated. Why? Well, because, you see, it marks the foundation of the nation. It's the time when they were brought out of slavery through the Exodus and constituted as the people of God. Now, if you read the account in the book of Exodus, and it is a marvellous account, I commend it to you, you'll find that at the first Passover, God instructed them to take a lamb and to sacrifice it on behalf of the members of the family. Do you remember that for many months, God had been calling on Pharaoh to let his people go But Pharaoh had refused, and so God sent various plagues on the land of Egypt. And at the end, he he moves, God moves decisively in judgment against him. Because the tenth and the last plague, the death of the firstborn, was about to strike the whole land of Egypt. Now, you see, every Jewish household had to take action if God's judgment was not going to fall on them as well as on the Egyptians. And so they had to take a lamb from the flock and they had to do two things with it. First, when it was sacrificed, its blood was to be sprinkled on the doorway of the house because God said that the blood of the lamb would be a substitute for the life of the firstborn son living in that house. God said, the blood is instead of you. And when I come through the land of Egypt in judgment and I see the blood over your door, I will pass over you. I will pass over the houses where the firstborn son is sheltering under the blood of the Lamb. And uh, if you read the account in Exodus chapter 12, you will see 
that in every single house in Egypt that night, no exceptions, there was a death. Either the death of the firstborn son or of a lamb in place of the son. A substitute sacrificed in his place. Now that was the first thing. The blood had to be sprinkled over the door. And the second thing was that the meat of the lamb provided a meal for the family as they headed out into the wilderness on pilgrimage. Because, you see, they were about to be led out of Egypt under the protection of God's mighty arm out into the desert and all the way to Mount Sinai. And the lamb was a pilgrimage meal. So just think about this. The lamb that provided protection also provided nourishment for the journey. And what the Lord Jesus, you see, is saying in Luke 22 is that the very first Passover, awesome as it was, was actually a pattern of something far greater. Because, you see, Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they fell back into the slavery of sin. They did that repeatedly throughout their history. They slipped back from their pure devotion to God, just as you and I do. And as time went by in Israel, there was a tremendous longing for something better. There was a great longing for something that would change the hearts of the people and bring them into an authentic experience of God's rule in their lives that was deeper, that was richer, that was more real. And Jesus says, everything that the Passover foreshadowed is about to be fulfilled in my death. It will find fulfilment in the kingdom of God. Now that, of course, is why many centuries later, John the Baptist turned to his disciples and pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he was picking up on this idea that the Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that Israel might be delivered in Egypt is being fulfilled in Christ, the Lamb of God whose blood is shed for the sins of the world. And it's very interesting that as we go through the Old Testament, we find that this is anticipated more and more. This was completely fresh to me this week. I'd never noticed the pattern before. But do you remember that um, Abraham was asked by God to kill his one and only son, the son through whom God had said all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And just as Abraham is about to bring down his knife on the son, God stops him. And he says, there is a lamb caught in the thicket and you must sacrifice it as a substitute for Isaac. A lamb for a man. But by the time we get to Exodus, it's a family, a lamb for a family. 
The family shelter under the blood of the Lamb and they're safe from the avenging wrath of God. And then as the nation continued to multiply and grow, an annual sacrifice was made on the Day of Atonement when the blood of an animal was shed for the entire nation. But you see, what was first a substitute for a man and then for a family and then for a nation becomes in the New Testament the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Now you see, that is what Jesus means by the coming of the kingdom. And he says it's coming very soon. He says, I will not eat it it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. In other words, what is about to happen is everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. Now, the Apostle Peter was there that night. At the time, of course, he didn't really understand very much of what Jesus was talking about. But 30 or so years later, he made an absolutely fascinating comment about this in his first letter. Keep a finger, please, in Luke and turn right in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 on page 862. 1 Peter chapter 1, page 862. It's a marvellous little letter that we studied here a couple of years ago and I think you can still listen to the talks on the website. I want you please to look at verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, page 862. Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now notice verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So Jesus said it was going to be fulfilled in the kingdom. And 30 years later, looking back, the Apostle Peter says, yes, and that was something that God chose to do before the creation of the world. You see, God knew that men and women would rebel against him. And he knew that the only way to bring us into relationship with himself was by sending his son to die in our place. And it was all settled in the mind of Almighty God before the creation of of the world. So can you see, the cross wasn't plan B. It wasn't things going wrong and then God trying to salvage something out of the wreckage. No. This is the grace and the wisdom and the love of God 
from before time began to send the Lord Jesus to be your Saviour. So can I ask you this morning, have you thanked him for it? Do you live day by day as if this was the most important thing that you could ever know? That your life might be lived in thankfulness to the God who before you were ever created had already decided to send his son to deal with your sin. And back in Luke, if you would come there now please, what Jesus is saying is that yes, Judas and the religious leaders are conspiring against him and Satan was behind them. But God has not given up the control and the government of his world. He's about to put down Satan's rebellion. He's about to establish the kingly rule of Jesus through the cross. And he's going to do it by turning what is going to look like a defeat into the greatest victory imaginable. And all of that is the fulfilment of everything that the Passover was pointing to. So why did Jesus have to die? Because Satan had to be defeated. Because the Passover had to be fulfilled. And lastly, in verses 19 to 23, because the new covenant had to be established. You see, at verse 19, something rather revolutionary happens. And I think most people who've been Christians for more than five minutes are so used to it that our eyes kind of glide over it and we miss its significance. Because up till now in this chapter, Jesus has been speaking in terms of the Passover, the old Passover celebration. But in verse 19, the language changes completely. Because Luke says there, And Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, Well, what did he not say? He didn't say, This unleavened bread symbolises what we were like back in the land of Egypt. He didn't say that. He says, No, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, the Last Supper becomes the First Supper of a new order. The King who has entered the city establishes a new covenant. The broken bread symbolises his body. This is my body given for you. And then you've got the same thing again in verse 20. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So this meal is now to be a a remembrance feast for him. It is to be the seal of the new covenant established through his death. 
And I think verse 20 is a particularly precious verse because it teaches us how Jesus understood his own death. I don't know whether you've noticed this, but there aren't actually very many verses in the New Testament that tell us that. But this verse does. And it's full of important meaning. You see, many, many centuries before, God had promised a new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. You see, under the old covenant, the law of God was written on tablets of stone so that people could read it and try and live by it. But the old covenant never dealt with the real problem, the underlying problem. Because throughout the Old Testament, the real problem for Israel was the problem of the heart. Their hearts were hardened. They couldn't keep the law. Actually, truth to be told, they didn't really want to. And so God promised through Jeremiah that one day he would begin again with a new covenant and a new people. And the thing about the people of the new covenant was that they would be so open to God that he would write his law not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. He would actually write it into their lives so that they wanted to fulfil it. And they would receive hearts of love, personalities of love that actually want to do God's will. So what would the new covenant mean? Well, it would mean knowing God personally in a deep, lasting way. It would include the blotting out of all sins and a new power within the people of God that would enable them to live as God wanted them to. And you see, down the centuries, many Jews were looking forward to this. They said, when Messiah comes, he's going to establish this new covenant. And here in our passage, Jesus says to this band of twelve men, here it is. As my body is broken like this bread, the new covenant that has been promised for centuries is beginning. And I open the kingdom of heaven to everybody who trusts in me. So you're no longer trying to follow a written code, but if you trust me for forgiveness, says Jesus, I'm going to, through my death, write my law on your heart. I'm going to blot out your sins and iniquities as if they'd never happened. I'm going to remember them no more. You will be completely forgiven. And I'm going to put my spirit within you so that within your very being, the life of God will be at work. And you will long to fulfil the law of God and put it into practice in your life. You'll be a new people. And the new covenant comes into being through my death. Sealed in my blood. Now again, of course, to Jewish people, that was a very familiar idea. Because the old covenant was sealed in blood. 
Uh, You can look it up later, but in Exodus 24, when Moses completes the Old Covenant ratification ceremony, what does he do? He sprinkles the people with blood. He actually says, the blood of the covenant is sprinkled on you, which means you belong to God. And here, as Jesus fulfills all that, giving up his perfect life in obedience to the Father as an atoning sacrifice for our sinful, rebellious lives, he pays the debt. He pays the full price for your rebellion and for mine so that we might belong to God. Notice, will you, the last two words in verse 20. The last two words in verse 20 are for you. The blood of the new covenant is poured out for you. Same thing in verse 19. This is my body given for you. And it means literally in place of you just like the blood on the doorposts in Egypt. Because the sacrifice of Jesus was a substitution just as much as the Passover lamb. And those who sat at the table with Jesus and ate that bread and drank the cup, they were signifying their acceptance and their personal involvement. You see, they were saying, this is for me. I may not understand all the details, but I know that I'm a member of the new covenant community of God. He's done it for me. And the same thing happens whenever we come to this communion table. We're saying, this is for me. His blood was shed for my sins. And you see, at the end of the day, that's what makes you a Christian. But as we finish, won't you please look at verse 21. But the hand of him who is going to betray me, says Jesus, is with mine on the table. You see, Judas was there at the table, wasn't he? And it reminds us, I think, that presence at the table is no guarantee against betraying the Lord. The table is a means of grace if we take it in faith. It's actually one of the ways that God strengthens his people. But it is no guarantee against betraying the Lord. And if we learn from Judas, we learn this that it is perfectly possible to come to the table and have the door of our lives open to the devil. See, that was what Judas was doing, wasn't it? He was there at the table. Um, His hand was on the table with Jesus. And yet the door of his life was open to Satan. I expect the disciples were absolutely horrified when Jesus said that one of them was going to betray him. But you see, it's recorded in Scripture to show us that it's possible. 
For the blood is shed for us and the body is broken for us. But the point is, we have to appropriate the benefits of his death for ourselves. What Judas never, never did was to say, this is for me. You know, he was there physically, but he wasn't involved. His mind was on the money. And so, a little bit later, as we'll get to in a week or two's time, Jesus says to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And uh, he left the room, betrayed the Lord. Friends, it is for us. It is for me. And one of the ways that we strengthen our faith as Christians is by coming back to the table, not as a ritual, not as a religious performance, but simply to say in our hearts, thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. Because, you see, if I can say that and I mean it, it means Satan is defeated in my life, that my sins have been forgiven, and that I'm a member of the eternal people of God, And I want to show Jesus how much I love him because he first loved me. And one of the ways that we do that is by coming back to the table. So we're going to do that now. We're not going to have our normal liturgy because it's in the text. We've read it. We know what it means. The Apostle Paul, as I said last Sunday, warns us elsewhere that um, this is for all Christians, but we are not to take it in an unworthy manner. And there are a couple of ways in which you can take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, One of them is if you're not yet a Christian. If you're not yet a Christian, we're delighted that you're here. You're in exactly the right place. But you can't come here (coughs) and say, this is for me, because it's not, not yet. We hope it will be, but it's not yet. So if that's where you are, then just sit this one out. The other way that you can take it in an unworthy manner is by being out of fellowship with another member of this church. And elsewhere Jesus says, if that's the case, before you come and do this, just make sure you put that relationship right, and then come and take the Lord's Supper next time. I'm going to ask uh, the stewards to come and take the uh, cover off. Won't you please come forward and take a cup and a piece of bread, return to your seat and then we'll all take part together when you've all got some.